You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Okay, I'm going to pray to get us going. Father, thank you. Thank you for gathering us here this morning. And thank you for our time in worship. Um, Thank you for the opportunity, uh, the privilege that that we have to to come and to gather together with other people who are journeying through life. And um, I thank you for for, for the chance to have our hearts just redirected back to you. To have our minds um, like recalibrated, um, to have the attention of our lives just focused on you and, and what you would say to us and what you would want to do deep within each of us. What I recognize that there are people gathered in this room from various different backgrounds, and, and that as we all come into this room and sit together, Lord, I just I know that it is your spirit that draws us here to this place and this time. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that you would release the power of your spirit in such a way that our hearts would be open to hear from you. So, Lord, I, I pray um, across the broad spectrum of those who are in this room who are skeptical wounded, fearful, guarded, unsure of, of you, and maybe even of your church, and maybe even of your word. And then, Lord, I, I just pray uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum for those that are here that, that they feel like there's a certainty within them about who you say you are and what you want from our lives, but just feel weary and uh, worn out and, and, and are just needing um, to hear from you and, and, and are needing refreshment and, and healing. God, I pray that you would do those things in us this morning. I pray, Father, that you would use our time in the Scriptures. I pray that you would use this message. I pray that you would use my words. As David, the psalmist, said, I pray that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight. O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. And I pray that in the midst of that, Lord God, that you would would cause total change and transformation to take place in the hearts and the lives of all who would hear this message today. So God, that is your work. I believe you and trust you to do it. And I ask that you would take my feeble attempts at doing this and, uh, and use it towards those purposes. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. I want to just review real fast um, where we've been at um, this morning as you have uh, engaged this topic around your tables. Just kind of a, a refresh, um, to a refocus. I want to read through the things that we opened up with. If you could describe the condition of your heart this morning, how would you describe it? Fearful, lonely, angry, frustrated, 
disconnected, rebellious, hurting, wounded, stressed, rushed? How would you describe the condition of your heart this morning as you walked in and as we began to worship and as we had our conversation together around the table, as we prayed for one another and as we now look at the Gospel of Luke again? What is that condition of your heart look like? What were the significant events that led to that condition of your heart this morning? These are questions that you might feel this morning that that you barely got a chance to even crack the ice on, right? Um... And my hope is that that you would let these questions continue to sink down into your heart, into your soul, maybe throughout the rest of the day, even throughout the course of the week, that you would just kind of continuously ask, what was that event that drove me to this place of despair? What was, what was the initial event that drove me to this place of rebellion? What was, that, what was that significant event that drove me to this place of feeling depressed? What was that significant event in my life that drove me to this place of just hardness and coldness and disconnectedness? Uh, my hope and prayer is that you would continue to ask the Spirit of God to reveal that to you throughout this week. And that you would also ask the follow-up question, what's it going to take? To take a step in, in, in the right direction to see the condition of your heart changed. Like, if you can think, if this is where your heart is, let's, say, let's just say your heart's in a, in a place this morning where you are sad and you're in despair. Then, then the goal for your heart, right, would be to be full of joy and, and maybe contentment. And, and the hard, I think the hard part for us sometimes is to see that big goal out there and to feel like we're never reaching that goal. And then what do you do? You fall into to more despair, right? And so maybe when you're thinking about where your heart is now, where your heart needs to be then, maybe just be thinking as you hear this message and, and then throughout the week, maybe be thinking, what's the next baby step that, that I need to take to just move that direction? Rather than trying to eat the elephant in one big chunk, what's, what's the next baby step that I can take to head in a direction where my heart can become healthy and God-honoring? So look at Luke 23. 39 through 43. Luke tells us this. This is one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So when we begin studying any passage of Scripture, as I say often, the first question you must ask is not, what does this passage say to me? First question you should ask when you arrive at a passage of Scripture is, what's happening in the text, right? What's happening in this passage? So I can begin to understand what God would want to say to me that would be the most helpful for me. Most of you know that my favorite commentator as we've worked through our way through this series has been Philip Riken. Nate and Seth, you can take your shot. Good. Okay. So they give me guff all the time because they, they hear me quote this guy and they're like, ching! Um, Philip Riken has been 
kind of my go-to guy as I've studied through this. And in his commentary on this passage, he explains that there's, there's four basic movements in these verses. And you can think of these four movements like four short scenes uh, in a movie clip where the camera basically shifts its focus or shifts its view from one point to the next. If you ever notice in movies or TV shows, um, the camera angles always shift continuously and quickly to keep our attention because we have issues with long attention spans. Um, I could probably go on a long diatribe about why that is. Uh, it's not going to be worth our time today for me to do that though. Um, but that's, that's a good way to look at this passage would be like four short clips within the same scene, um, four different points of view maybe, um, kind of all around the same theme, wanting to reveal to us the condition of our hearts. I think that what Luke wants to show us here could be summarized or summed up in, in four words uh, that might help you to kind of organize as we think our way through this and study. Uh, those four words, or you could even think of them as like scene titles, right? Scene titles at the bottom of the screen. Rage, rebuke, request, and reward. Okay, so think about those four words. Rage, rebuke, request, and reward. Scene number one, what we see is in, it's in verse 39. We see the rage of a criminal on a cross, right? We see the rage of a criminal on a cross. Now, in our previous verses, as we studied our way through Luke's gospel, we saw Jesus being crucified horrifically on a cross right in between two other criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And now, in this moment, in this passage, what we see is this um, rage-filled criminal just unleashing a torrent of anger at the Son of God. In the midst of all of his rage, what we see is we see the condition of his heart. We see the condition of his heart as he questions Jesus' identity, right? Are you really the Son of God? He not only questions Jesus' identity, but he also demands a show of power. And if you're the Son of God, save us and yourself then. That's really who you are? And get me out of this. If you're really God, if you really have the power, then get me out of these momentary circumstances. Relieve my pain. This is what he's saying. He's ticked. He doesn't believe that Jesus is a savior. Doesn't really want to be saved. At least not in the truest biblical sense where we cry out to Jesus for salvation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of our sin. That's not, that's not this criminal's heart as he unleashes his anger and his rage and his bitterness and his resentment on Jesus. He only, only wants to be freed from the immediate circumstances of the pain that he's living in. He's not interested in the reward of eternal life. He's only interested in the reward of immediate gratification. 
It's his only interest. Let's not forget the intense amount of pain that this dude is in, right? Let's not forget that this rage-filled criminal has been crucified, just like Jesus was. And he's paying the immediate consequences for his sin. He is in deep agony in these moments. And he can't do a, a thing to set himself free, right? Can't get himself off that cross. He can't get himself out of that predicament He's not only ticked about that, but I think, I think if you put him, yourself in, in his shoes, I think this guy's full of rage against Jesus. He's full of rage against Jesus who says that he's got all the power in the universe at his fingertips, but won't lift a finger to relieve the momentary affliction of his suffering. He's right next to Jesus who claims to be the Son of God, claims to be King of the universe, claims to have all the power in the world, but will not lift his finger to remove this momentary affliction. This guy's pissed. He's ticked. Because he, he can't get out of what he's got himself into. He's mad because he's been caught. Now he's paying the price. This is a picture of this rage-filled criminal. Question for you and I is like, can you identify with him at all? Or are you already in a place where you're like, man, I'm not like that guy. I'm not a loser like him, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, the, other, the flip side of that is like, yeah, poor pitiful me. I, I am so bad. Like, I'm horrible. No one can save me. Like, you can fall into either one of those two ditches of pride or pride because they're both pride, right? Nobody can save me? Really? So you're saying God couldn't save you? Pride? Or, I'm not like that guy. Oh, pride? So just get that out there now. Can you identify with this guy? Is there a place inside of your heart where you're ticked at God deep down inside, disappointed in God for some reason? You be blind to the sin in your life because your anger towards God. And I, I would say this, like in this moment, even as I asked that question, if something inside of you clicked and you were like, whoa, yeah, I was, you know, I was blind to this. And that's, that would be like the spirit of God revealing something inside of you, right? And I would just encourage you, don't shove that to the side. Don't, don't shove that to the side as the Holy Spirit reveals whatever you were once blind to. Because what he's doing in these moments is open your eyes so that you can see places and conditions of your heart that need to get dealt with. Scene number two is the rebuke of another criminal. Right? There's two criminals. Verses 40 through 41, as criminal number one is unleashing his hate-filled demands at Jesus. Then criminal number two also unleashes, but he unleashes this really sharp rebuke at the first dude. His sharp rebuke is simply this. In my paraphrase, this is what he says. He says, hey, hey, like you and I, you and I have been sentenced rightly. Rightly. We've been sentenced rightly. We're receiving the proper reward, the proper punishment for our crimes. Hey, but Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He is innocent. And yet here we are. 
hanging on crosses on the same hill of death as this innocent man. Now you should fear God because you're about to meet Him. That's the sharp rebuke that takes place from criminal number two. This rebuke from this second criminal man, it's, it's full of repentant language. He's not excusing his sin, which is something we love to do, right? Amen, <laughs> Amen right? <laughs> he's not playing the blame game. He's not like, well, it was her fault. <laughs> well, it, was, it, was, it was his fault that I exploded all over the place, right? It wasn't me. It was, my, it was my mom and dad's fault. Right? It was my, my siblings' fault. My spouse's fault. It was my kids' fault. We, we play the blame game, the excuse game. He's not doing that. This guy is not excusing. He's not blaming. He's not ticked off at God. He's not demanding that God perform parlor tricks for him. He's not seeking to be entertained. He's not seeking to be relieved from his momentary pain or his immediate circumstances either. In his sharp rebuke, what we see with this second guy is we see his repentant heart as he acknowledges sin, which is a tough place to go. Like, and let me just bunny trail for a second. Here's what's easy. Here's a piece of cake. I, I, I'm sure that you've heard this too. Like, you can bump into anybody and anybody would be like, oh, I'm not perfect. Now, Question, is that really ownership of sin? No. <laughs> no. That's a big overgeneralization. Like, oh, well, we're all kind of broken people, so let's just kind of get on and forget about this. Don't, don't actually drill down deep inside, right? Amen. Right? And so this guy, man, he is, he is, he's not excusing at all. He's not, he's not blaming he accepts the consequences for his sin. He, he acknowledges his sin specifically. Not trying to paint over it in any way. Recognizes Christ's innocence. This is a huge piece of walking out repentance, is recognizing Christ's innocence and our guilt and our need for Him to do this work in us. And then, and I think in the way that, the way that this second criminal speaks, he, he actually takes on this posture of God-fearing reverence. It's a posture of God-fearing reverence. Like, just ask yourself that question, like, what does that look like for you to be in a posture of actually fearing God day in and day out? As you walk out all of your interactions in this life, interactions with your wife, your husband, your kids, maybe an ex-wife or an ex-husband, right? Um, friends, employers, other employees. What does it look like for you to walk in, in humble, God-fearing reverence, a posture of that in relationship with others? Because, because honestly, here's the primary thing. Um, we believe the gospel vertically, okay, as we look up to God. And then what happens is the actual um, authentic belief of that gospel then makes its way out into our obedience in relationships with others. This is the primary way that you see the evidence of the gospel at work in someone's life. 
It's James, once again, who continuously says, well, tell me all about what you think you believe. I'll show you with my actions. James is a guy, if you look at the gospel or the, the, the letter of James, James is a guy who is much more about proving it with his lifestyle than with his lips, right? Like, like a lot of us can find it pretty easy to sit around a table and talk about big, high, lofty concepts and then walk right out that door and abuse people with our words and our actions, which really continues to prove to us how much we need Jesus to continue changing us, right? Amen. This man on this cross, the second man, he issued this sharp rebuke. And he was like, walking around, if, if you're hanging there, I guess, right? In this posture of God-fearing reverence. And on top of that, like the final thing that I see in him is that he also proclaimed that with his words. Okay? There, there is a proclamation of the gospel, a proclamation of God's work in our lives that must take place verbally. But I think all of Scripture, as you look at it, is, is trying to get our minds in a place where we actually believe something, and our hearts in a place where we're beginning to desire something new, and our mouths in a place where we begin to proclaim something different, and our hands in a place where we begin to behave and obey differently. Right? So, so have you acknowledged your specific sin against God? How long has it been since you sat down and just acknowledged specific sin on your part without blaming, without excusing, without blowing up smoke screens, without being super general about it? How long has it been since you confessed specific sin, not just to God, but to other believers? That you were sitting across the table from eyeball to eyeball where you were able to say, man, this is where I've been struggling. How long has it been since you did that? Are you living in the momentary consequences of your sin right now, maybe? And maybe that's a way of God wanting to wake you up? Have you trusted in Christ's innocent sacrifice to remove your shame and your guilt? Now, some of you here, I know you're, just, you're not in that place yet, where you're like, Matt, I just know about trusting Jesus. I don't want to see you walk around in shame or guilt or regret or, or even just self-willpower, like trying to do this on your own. I don't want to see that. Scene number three. Uh, is the request of a changed man. This is uh, verse 42. The request of a changed man. Man, you can tell a lot. You can tell a lot about the condition of someone's heart by what they ask for when they're experiencing tremendous pain or when they're facing death. Just give you a second to, to think about that. You can tell a lot about the condition of someone's heart by what they ask for, what they request, what they seek after, what they chase after in those moments of extreme pain or impending death. Watched my mom die a couple years ago. And it was interesting the things that she requested on her deathbed. These men that are hanging on the cross with Jesus, they're on their deathbed. At first glance, it might appear uh, as though both of these criminals ask for the same thing, right? The reality is that the, the first criminal didn't ask for anything. He demanded momentary relief. 
from his suffering. But the second criminal became a changed man, right? He became a changed man when he asked for Jesus to remember him in eternity. Like the first man on the cross, the rage-filled man, he hoped for a, listen, momentary quenching of the thirst that his pain was creating. But the second man... And the second man hoped for and asked for an eternal quenching of his appetite. The second man was a criminal dying to pay the penalty for his own crimes in eternity that he could and he could either continue being that person who had paved his own way straight to hell, or he could ask Jesus to save him and then trust Jesus to pave his way to heaven. That's exactly what the second criminal does. He asks Jesus to save him in eternity. And by doing so, he proves that he is, in fact, a man who's been changed on this side of eternity. What is the condition of your heart right now in regards to eternity and momentary suffering? You're trying to prove that Jesus is a failure while demanding that, that he gives you a big show? Does your heart or your, is your heart like thirst and hunger? For more of Jesus or more momentary covering? What is the condition of your heart in regards to eternity? That's the question there, right? Now, scene number four, the final scene in this passage is in verse 30, 43. Jesus um, gives a great reward in this final scene. Scene number four is called the reward of a dying Savior. He rewards both the repentant and the unrepentant. This is the truth about God. God gives out equal rewards to the repentant and the unrepentant. To the unrepentant, rage-filled criminal who made demands, this is the reward. Jesus is silent to him. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge him or address him. Silent, painfully silent in the midst of his circumstances. This, I believe, in this passage is a foretaste of the eternal hell that this guy is headed towards. A place where God's presence is eternally absent amidst the pain and the destruction of sin. The first criminal wasn't interested in listening. He was more interested in making Jesus meet his demands to quench his hunger and his thirst momentarily. Therefore, and this first criminal experienced a literal hell on earth. But the second criminal, if you think about him, the second criminal who was now a changed man, Jesus responded graciously and mercifully to him. He said, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
See, Jesus rewarded the second criminal's change of heart with a promise that he could hold on to. And that, that promise was a promise of everlasting life in the presence of God. His promise was true. Truly, I say to you. His promise was true. There was no falsehood in it. It could be trusted completely. He could be certain and sure of what Jesus was saying. This promise was true. It was God's word. Truly, I say to you. This is Jesus' words to the heart of a changed man. His promise was true. His promise was His word. His promise was immediate and relational. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not sometime when I decide to get you out of that holding place. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today your suffering will be relieved. Today you'll be with me. It's relational. Today you and I will be together in a place where there is no more mourning or suffering or tears or hurting or pain or sickness or sin or death. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is true and this is my promise to you. This is what Jesus said to the man standing next to him that recognized him and repented and had a change of heart. This is the hope of heaven that all of us have who have trusted in Christ. And if you're here and you have not trusted in him, you do not have that hope yet you look forward to a place called hell and eternal damnation and I, and, and I don't want that what I want is for you to hear the promise of Jesus that he can come and he can change you and he can transform you and he can take away the penalty and the power and the presence of your sin in your life and he can do miraculous works in and through you the one that we serve who died at this cross and then went to a tomb is no longer in that tomb he is alive we sang that song today praise the king he's alive and you and I get to tap into that power if he lives inside of you that's the hope of heaven and that's the good news that I'm here to proclaim to you today right today you'll be with me in paradise do you have that hope which side of the cross are you living on are you on that side where you're just pissed at God ticked at God running from God giving God the middle finger or are you on the other side of the cross where you are repentant owning your sin repenting from your sin asking for help confessing and trusting in the power of God to continue to raise you back to new life that's the reward that I hope that you would press on after so my, my hope is that as we've examined what's happened in this passage, that, that there's much of what I've said that would be helpful to you, right? But I also just want to leave us there. My hope is to be even more helpful and be more direct. Um, a friend of mine recently, um, one of the guys that serves on our advisory board externally, he was like, Joe, you do a really good job of talking about everything you know when it comes to a text. And he goes, subjectively, it's like when you're preaching, you're like, hey, look at how much I know. I'm worth following. You should come follow me. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> that hurts. Yeah, right? And he's like, and, and I, I was thankful for, for my friends. There's a couple of friends of mine who were preachers and church planners that helped to coach me, right? And I was thankful that they were this honest with me because they were like, don't, don't stop sharing what you know because God's given you a mind and intellect. Use that to get this text expounded and exposited in our midst, right? I just used two big words. You can ask me afterwards. 
<laughs> but, but you need to find a place where we can be helpful. And he's like, in a room with 50, 60 people in it, you can look around that room and know almost every person in the room. And he goes, you do not do them a service by walking out of the room and not applying this to their heart. You don't do them a service by, by not looking at them and saying almost individually without me standing in the pulpit. Like, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be like, hey, Seth, um, here's what you wrestle with, and so you need to do this. I'm not going to do that. That's abusive and inappropriate, right? But I'm just fearful of you if I walk away from here without saying, hey, in this room, I know we got single people who struggle with uh, singleness. We got single dudes who struggle with pornography, right? We got ex-addicts that are struggling with that hunger and that thirst, we got married couples who are just at each other's throats, right? We got parents that are struggling to parent children. And, and the list can go on and on, right? If I just keep thinking, and if we all keep thinking, I do us a big disservice if I walk away and I don't say, let me try to help us turn towards Jesus with this passage. So, with that being said, I've got four questions. Diagnostic questions, okay, is what they are. Diagnostic questions I hope would help you to diagnose maybe, maybe where the largest category of your heart is that needs to be affected by this passage and by this sermon. So question one is this. Is your heart filled with rage? That's question one. Is your heart filled with rage? You think about this. Children get pissed off when they don't get what they want. Right? Anybody else in here who's not a child but likes to act like a child deep down inside because you didn't get what you wanted? Right? Uh, my wife didn't give me what I wanted. My husband didn't give me what I wanted. My kids didn't give me what I wanted. Like, I'm just going to go bingo on all of them for me. Right? Okay? I'm a big wreck and a big mess. This is what we do and we don't get what we wanted. We get ticked. We get upset. Married people get angry when their spouses don't, when their spouses don't do what they want, when they let them down. Single people get filled with disappointment. And when that disappointment doesn't get dealt with right, it turns into anger, which then turns into unforgiveness, which then turns into bitterness, which then, which then turns into resentment. And then it just explodes all over everybody, right? That's what happens. That's what happens. Employees, if you're an employee, how easy is it for you to walk around with a big fat chip on your shoulder because your employer didn't give you what you think you deserve, right? I've been working here X amount of years. I work harder than that other guy. I'm always on time. I should have got that raise. Whatever it may be. I don't know, you know. But most of us in this room are employees somewhere. Some of you might be employers. And that's a whole completely different conversation. <laughs> People oftentimes angrily demand that God does more for them because they are uncomfortable with their life circumstances. We didn't get what we wanted, so we demand that God give us more. The question that's always going through our heads is, why couldn't I have what I wanted? Why doesn't God give me what I'm asking for? It's like when my kids are like, why can't I have hot dogs for dinner? Because I said, that's why. Right? <laughs> is this you? Does this describe your heart's condition? Is your heart filled with rage? And let me just say this. You don't have to be the big external type like me that's up here, like hands waving, face getting red. You can see spit flying. That's the whole baptism from the preacher from the front, right? You don't have to be that external type. You can be the internal type too that never expresses it that way. But instead what you do is you turn that six shooter back around yourself and you shoot yourself all day long inside. That's the internal expression of rage and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. Okay? Question number two is, uh, does, does your heart ignore rebuke and correction? 
Typically, our hearts want to turn a deaf ear when someone rebukes us and corrects us because we are consumed with other voices. Like the first thief on the cross, we become consumed with our circumstances and we turn a deaf ear to the voices of rebuke and correction in our lives. But listen to this. Proverbs tells us this. Proverbs tells us that smooth words from the enemy lead to death, but cutting words from a friend lead to what? Life. Life. The enemy is going to speak real nice, smooth words to you. Yeah, come do this. Don't you want to come over here? Don't you want to come over to the dark side, right? Don't you want to think this way? Don't you want to feel this way? Don't you want to act this way? Oh, yeah, let me just smooth talk you into it. But the cutting words of a friend lead to life. Which do you run to? Smooth words of the enemy? Cutting words of a friend. Question number three. What request is your heart crying out for? Our hearts cry out for immediate satisfaction. Just like the first criminal. Our hearts long to be, listen to these words. These are, these are roots of sin. This is called idolatry, or they can become idolatry deep down inside of us. Think about what your heart requests, longs for. <coughs> Desires over any other thing, right? Here's some. Does your heart long to be safe? Not a bad thing. Does your heart long to be safe? Long to be loved? Do you long to be respected? Does your heart long to be desired? or accepted, or admired, or powerful, or comfortable, or successful? Like, which one of those words for you? Let me read them again. Our hearts long to be safe, or loved, or respected, or desired, or accepted, or admired, or powerful, or comfortable, or successful. And what we do is we pursue relationships. We spend money. We read books. <laughs> I'm pointing at myself. We read books. I do all these. Um, but reading books, big, big time. Read books. We read books. We engage in hobbies. We, we posture ourselves at work. We pursue sex. And, and we pursue a plethora of other godly things. You just hear me say all those things are godly, which means that sex is godly. Kids, you can plug your ears. It's okay. Yeah, all these things are godly. But what we do is we wind up pursuing all these things to feed our desires for comfort, for power, to be loved, to be accepted, to be valued. Oh, value me. Make me feel better about myself, right? This is what we do. We do this to our husbands. We do this to our wives. We do this to our ex-spouses. We do this to our kids. We do this to our employees. We do this to our friends. We do this to our pastors. We do this to our church members. We do this to our moms. We do this to our dads. We do this... And the lust just goes on and on and on. Remember, belief is uh, vertical, as I believe in Christ and trust in the gospel. The proof of that is in our horizontal relationships with one another. In our horizontal relationships, in our pursuit of things and relationships, oftentimes, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fill those requests. We're trying to feed or nurse that little baby in our arms. Remember that illustration from last week, right? Right? And James says what? James says, hey, sin and desire had a baby, and that baby became death. 
I want to wind up nursing that. Man, I want to be comforted, so I'm going to nurse that in whatever way that I can. Oh, I want to feel powerful, so I'm going to nurse that in whatever way that I can, right? What are some of the ways that you do that? I want to feel valued and accepted, so I pursue relationships where people stroke my ego. I, uh, I want to feel powerful, so I only pursue relationships where I am the big boss man at the top, right? I want to feel um, desired, so I pursue relationships where somebody speaks desire to me. Marriage, this can be that sexual relationship between man and wife, right? You can find so much desire there, feel desirable. Many other ways we do this, I just don't have time to, to spend time on it, right? The question for us, though, is like, what request is your heart crying out for now? Are you crying out for acceptance, for comfort, to be loved? Are you consumed by chasing your version of success in marriage, parenting, vocation, friendship? Like, what is your heart crying out for that you ultimately do not believe that Jesus alone satisfies? Because I can tell you this. If you and I really, truly believed that Jesus could satisfy these things, we would not chase after those desires. That's the struggle of the Christian life, isn't it? is to always be confessing, man, you know what? The only reason that I was pursuing that is because I thought that you were going to somehow meet my desire better than Jesus. Like that would be confessing something specifically, right? Question number four, what reward is your heart seeking? What reward is your heart seeking? Criminal who changed... He came to a point of desperation where he realized that only Jesus satisfies eternally. What more reward could we want than the eternal rewards of trusting in Christ anyways, right? That's really the implicatory question of every passage in the scripture is, what more reward could you want than something that would satisfy you or feed you for all of eternity? Why would you want something momentary rather than something eternal? Ah, it doesn't make any sense. This is how deceived all of us are. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter, right? This is our struggle. God, I'm struggling to believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's the prayer we should all be praying, isn't it? Right? Like, why would we trade that? Why would we trade an everlasting reward and a hope of heaven for the perishable rewards of immediate gratification here in this life? Listen to me. Like, our marriages will never satisfy us. They'll never satisfy you. They just won't. I love my wife. I love being married to her. I can tell you this, and she can tell you for sure. <laughs> marriage does not satisfy you eternally. Your vocation will not satisfy you eternally. Your kids definitely will not satisfy you eternally. Your friendships will not satisfy you eternally. You ever sit around wondering, like, where are all my friends at when I need them the most? The only... Don't hear me wrong. Like pain happens, right? And we got to heal. But part of the way of healing is just recognizing that, hey man, the only reason I feel that way is because I've made somebody else more ultimate than Jesus. And I began to think that somehow they were going to satisfy me and feed me eternally. And I need to repent of that and just ask Jesus to help me to thirst and to hunger for Him because He will satisfy me eternally. Listen, if, if eternal reward 
No. If immediate reward, listen, if immediate reward is what you seek, then immediate reward is what you'll get at the cost of losing eternal reward. But if eternal reward is what your heart is learning to long for and beginning to long for and growing in longing for, and I think that this is the, this is the picture of what it means to be Christian and be discipled, right? What does Jesus say to his disciples before he leaves? Buddy trouble before I wrap this thing up for us just to share something that I know that you guys are probably like, who cares? You've shared enough with us. No, I, I pray this does you good. Jesus says to his disciples before he goes, hey, go make disciples of all nations, right? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them, teaching them how to live. Teaching them how to be holy. Teaching them how to follow all my commands, right? This is the mark of discipleship. That we actually teach people how to obey what Jesus has said. This is focused on eternity. If eternal reward is what your heart longs for, then eternal reward is what your heart will get. Jesus offers you eternal safety. He offers you unconditional love. He offers you total acceptance. Jesus reveals to us that, that the Father has desired us so much that He gave Jesus at the cross for us. His offer to us is everlasting peace and comfort in the hope of heaven. What reward is your heart seeking? Are you seeking the reward of momentary pleasure? Or are you seeking the reward of eternal satisfaction in Christ alone? And if you find yourself identifying with any of these diagnostic questions. I want to give you a practical way to move forward as an appropriate response as we wrap up our time. Um, I think that the most appropriate way to um, respond to this um, is to confess your sins one to another and ask God to help you repent. Right? And so one of the things that we always do at the end of our service together is we serve communion. There's always two of us up at the front that serve communion to you. And you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be a Christian. You have to be somebody who has said, I've trusted in Christ to save me. And I want to walk out a road of repentance where I'm seeking God's power in my weakness and where I'm asking Jesus to make me whole where I am broken. That, that's, that's where you have to be as a Christian. Um, and in that, as we serve that communion, we want to pray with you and for you. This is a good place for you to be able to say, hey, these are the sins I've been struggling with this week. Now, it's not like confession, like in a Catholic church where you go sit on the other side of a screen and hide yourself from somebody. This is like face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, where you say, hey, these are the things I'm struggling with, and I just need God to forgive me. And then the second point of application is this, that then you would actually take communion and apply that to you. That as you take communion, you're actually saying, Jesus, I am so sinful. I don't deserve this broken body and shed blood. But I am remembering that though I didn't deserve it, you gave yourself anyways. And so I'm here humbly acknowledging my sin, my brokenness, and my weakness. And I need you to cover me. And so then we take that in remembrance. And then the third point of application is to continue worshiping God. Because this is all, at the end of the day, a worship issue. That's what this is. And the cross of Christ changes that. The cross of Christ changes which side of that cross you land on. In summary, both men in this passage had the exact same opportunity to encounter Christ. 
You think about this like you guys here. You have all had the exact same opportunity to encounter Christ today through the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. You've all had the exact same opportunity. Yet, in this passage, the condition of these two guys' hearts are vastly different. Rage, rebuke, request, reward. Four movements, four scenes, four heart conditions. The question for you and I is which side of that cross do you land on? Are you full of rage? Are you ignoring rebuke and correction? Are you pursuing worldly requests? Are you pursuing eternal requests? Are you seeking worldly rewards or eternal rewards? What is the condition of your heart today? And my prayer and my hope is that God would take that and use that deep down inside of you guys and help you move to a place where God is continuing to do the work of salvation and change in each and every one of you. Let me close this in prayer as our music team comes forward. Father, thank you. Let me just invite everybody, before I pray, invite everybody just to go ahead and stand up together. Get all the chairs screeching out of the way in one, one shot, right? Now let me pray. Father, we thank you for our time together here today as a church. And Lord, we just... We thank you for this place in the scriptures, this picture um, of what, what our hearts could possibly look like. Well, we pray that you would just maybe take all of this, confront us where we need, encourage us where needed, help us to find that hope of heaven. And Lord, as we turn to communion, remembering your shed blood and broken body, Lord, I pray that you would apply that to our hearts, give us comfort. And just continue speaking to each of us. Lord, I pray that you would bring repentance where sin is. I pray, God, that you would bring um, a recognition of your power where we feel broken. And I pray that you would bring healing in places of weakness and um, unhealthiness. So, Father, I pray that you would do those things. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Hey, guys. Thanks for letting me preach. Sure is a riot. I love I love you guys a bunch. Let's uh let's worship and take communion together. You're listening to an audio message from the well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.